welcome Claire Lincoln to episode number 30 of the Path to Follow podcast. Mm-hmm. We've done 30 episodes That's so far this year. Good in, stuff. Since October. Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, Pretty I'm cool. excited. Um, Cesare, is, he, he's working hard on these episodes. Yeah. We're keeping him busy during COVID <laughs> times. That's good, yeah. <laughs> um, so Claire, just to begin, maybe you can talk about what you do here at Gilman yeah, sure. um, in the modern language department. Yeah, so, um, I mean, this year my role is a French teacher. I'm only only teaching French this year. Um, my first three years here I was teaching three French sections and one Spanish section. But um, now I've got um, I've got kind of a broad range. I've got a French 2, French 3, French 3 honors, and AP. So I've got boys in all the grades and at varying levels of their French language experience. I have a couple of students who are in your French classes in a couple of them that they always say you're their favorite teacher because you so, something that you're doing with the virtual experience is okay. really efficient for them. Brooks okay. Kitchell always raves about your class, so I guess he gets an extra ten points. Okay, yeah, he, he gets an A. <laughs> yeah, um, he, he gets an A. <laughs> well, he's he's a very smart kid anyway, so I'm sure, sure he's doing pretty yeah, well. But what totally. what are you doing during this COVID pandemic that's working so well? Do you think? Um, I think early on. I try to ask them as many questions like, hey, what am I doing that sucks? Just to to understand. I mean, you know, I was in college and I took some online classes in college. It wasn't so, so long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had some experience of like, what is it like on the user end of what what works and what really didn't? Um, but I, I try to get their feedback as much as possible and like just not take it personally. Like if what I'm doing isn't working for you, what can I what can I adjust? Um and just, you know, trying to incorporate as much as, as much of their feedback as it made sense to incorporate, you know. Um, but, I mean, just from the Canvas organization, and I made a lot of mistakes in the spring, too. I think it was, you know, we were all scrambling. Um, so I tried to kind of think a lot this summer about what, what really made my life difficult and what seemed to be the biggest sources of confusion for my students in the spring to then think about what can I do differently. So, I mean, like nitty-gritty details like I do a, a module for every single day with their their assignments that they need to turn in the next class are the only things in the module and so like it's a lot to set up um it, it takes it takes a stupid amount of time but um it's somewhat clunky to put all those things in there and spend all the time but once you p- populate the modules on canvas it kind of runs on its own yeah so like I've tried to have some tried to keep a pretty consistent rhythm just for my own sanity so that I'm not spending all night and all weekend doing stuff, try to get my modules for at least Monday and Tuesday of the next week, but ideally the whole week set up on Friday so that all their assignments are in and then I can, like, on the early end of the week, I can focus on planning and grading. On the latter end of the week, I'm focusing on setting up the next week's assignments. And some weeks that works great and some weeks that doesn't happen at all, but... Mm-hmm. That's uh, what I'm trying to and do. And you have four different levels of French mm-hmm. that you're teaching. So different canvas page for all of those. That's that's a lot to keep track of. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, I think, and I, and I let the students know that from the get-go. Like, I am going to make mistakes and I'm going to say I posted something and then I like definitely didn't post it. So you just need to tell me or, you know, just tell me and I will get it up for you. Mm-hmm. But, but, yeah, there's stuff falls through the cracks when you've got you know, four four different things to run. Yeah. Well, that's the main thing for me too. The communication piece during these times is 
crucial for like even yeah. when someone just emails me mr scott you know you didn't tell us this it's so helpful for me because i i forget we have four different classes yeah we're telling one class something and maybe something slips through the cl- cracks totally. but communication is massive during these separated times that yeah. we're living in yeah for sure and i think once they understand once they see early on that like oh i can bring something up with this teacher and like they will be responsive and they will fix it it empowers them and makes them feel comfortable to continue to do that in the future um and i mean and i've said this before i feel like i've said this a lot this year i i feel like in some ways i do kind of have it easier because being a french teacher while i have four separate discrete courses three of those four classes are all kids that i've taught before so Mm -hmm. i didn't have to do the relationship building with most of my students only online um Mm -hmm. I, i taught most of them last year and then some of them the year before that so that that helped for sure so is that first french class that you listed the french two class Mm -hmm. is that the beginner's french is that like ground zero no um so ground zero french is middle school and uh bless them Bryn mar i think Bryn mar is teaching it right now um no french one is is not my is not my my jam so french two we kind of do a review and it's it's mostly, it's typically mostly freshmen, although this year that's a, a little bit of an exception. Um, and it's a lot of getting them all on the same page because they're coming from all these different middle schools, so they don't have a, a common basis of a language. So, I mean, really the first full semester is just like, okay, what do we know? What do we not know? Who has gaps where? Mm-hmm. And trying to get everyone on the same page. So um, it's funny. And it's it's the, it's the same for Spanish too. It's um, It seems like it would be an easy course because the language at that level is not difficult. Um, so it feels like it should be an easy course to teach, but it's actually very challenging because there are kids who are crazy bored because you're only reviewing stuff that they've already seen. And there are kids who are floundering because their middle school didn't cover as much. So it's, yeah, it's interesting. It's hard to find the proper pace and get everyone up to speed. Mm -hmm. That's really what you're doing that first. Yes. Yeah. So French too and Spanish too. That's what those classes are about. How do you make your classes, especially during COVID times, conversational because for me and I've talked to Zealand on the podcast a little Mm -hmm. bit and I think we've had some other modern language teachers on but for me I I I feel like I need to have those conversations with people and be in that environment and it seems so difficult on on zoom How, how do you make that work in your classes um I don't know that I always make it work is the first piece but I I mean I try to do as much setting them up with the sentence structures that they're going to need so that they can make their attempts. And then another, I think another important piece is establishing for them really early on, like, you are going to make mistakes, so please just try to get over that. Like, you are going to mess this up a lot. And the point is to persevere through it. Um, but, I, you know, putting them, oops, putting them in pairs and then asking them the same exact questions that they just did in pairs to get them com- to get them in conversation to get them speaking and like I think they just kind of slowly build up their confidence level with it because at least in our in our classes I'm asking them questions about themselves I'm asking them questions that should in, in English would probably be pretty easy to answer mm-hmm. um, so it's more about building their confidence and helping them to see that like they can make mistakes but they need to attempt to do it in the target language gotcha um... And you, so you taught French and Spanish mm-hmm. for the for the majority of your career. Were, were you teaching both? Um, 
probably about 50-50 at this point. So I before I was at before I came to Gilman, I was teaching at Notre Dame Preparatory, which is up in Towson. Um, and that's all girls, right? That's all, yes, okay. that's all girls. Um, and my last year there, I taught French and Spanish, and then my first three years here was both. Yeah, so 50-50. Okay. Yeah. So what? I mean, that's impressive. I'm an English teacher. I'm still trying to figure out the language that I speak. And now you have English, you have French, you have Spanish. How yeah. did you how did you learn all these languages and want to teach them? Um, I think some people just kind of have a brain that holds languages better, right? And it, it, it's hard to explain, but my, my brain holds them. My brain holds languages. It, it, I, it's interesting if you look at the way that um, children acquire their first language, and then the, the part of your brain that acquires second languages begins to shut down for most people at about 13 or 14. That doesn't mean you can't learn a language. It just means it is easier the younger you are. But that is not true for all people. So some people have that language part of their brain stays a little bit more active for longer. Um, and so the thing is, once if that part of your brain is continuing to fire, it's going to be easier to continue or to add on additional um, new languages because that part of your brain has been active. So when you start to learn a new language, your brain kind of creates a, okay, this was my maternal language, but here's my second language box. Mm -hmm. And it's going to put all language input into that, that one little space. So when you start, when you add a third language on, um, initially your two second, your two non-maternal languages are going to be, you're going to confuse them. So like I would be sitting in my Spanish or my Italian class spitting out a lot of French or having the French be the first things that come up. But then the more time you spend with it, your brain just kind of the way I, and like, this is just my way of thinking about it, but your brain creates a new box. Like this is my French box and this is my Arabic box and this is my Italian box and here's my Spanish box. And like, so you that's know you more languages than just French and Spanish um, I and English? I studied Italian and Arabic. Um, I could sound out the Arabic alphabet for you at this point and like tell you hello, goodbye, how are you? Um, I didn't keep up with Arabic and I, I, I've got like travelers Italian, like I'd be fine in like a cafe, but I don't, I don't speak Italian like that. So it sounds like you're naturally gifted and some people are just naturally gifted at processing language and, and some understanding. Some people have a language brain. Yeah. That's I can't, how I think I, of it. I can't say that about myself. I mean, I haven't tried really to learn new mm. language since I stopped studying Spanish in my freshman year of college right. where you have to take your gen ed of right. foreign language. Right. And then language. you're done and then you're saying, Adios. And then I'm out of there. But... <laughs> So what did, what language did you, did you learn first? French. Yeah. French first. I started French in high school, and then I added Italian and Arabic in college, um, and then I actually learned Spanish while I was teaching at NDP, and it was it was a job security move to be totally honest with you. I mean, the unfortunate reality is that French enrollment across the nation is nowhere near as high, nowhere near as high as as, as Spanish is, um, and I felt like while I was early in my career, it would be smart to learn enough Spanish to start teaching some Spanish so that um, I would be able to stay full-time employed. Um, and I've been really fortunate to go back to all French here at Gilman for, for a little bit. I mean, it's not going to be forever, but yeah. Um, yeah. So was that all self-driven, self-taught your Spanish, or did you take a course, or did you do... I took a summer course at, um, at CCBC to learn the basics and to get some pronunciation help, but then beyond that, I... <laughs> The first year I was teaching Spanish, I was base. I was mm, 
I was basically a unit ahead of my students in the book. I would like teach myself what they needed to know and then like a week later go teach them, which I don't really recommend as a as an approach, but it worked it worked for me. I was teaching Spanish one. It's fresh it, in your brain. You, you know, can... it's fresh in my brain. It's Spanish one. It's like it's not hard stuff. Mm-hmm. Um if it's not hard stuff when you already have a language template and French and Spanish both being romance languages conceptually they are exactly the same it was just applying new words to the concepts i already had so that's what made it so easy you had the blueprint down exactly are there other languages that you want to learn i really want to pick arabic back up um i started studying arabic as a junior in college so and I, i took i took three semesters of it and arabic being a less commonly taught language having a different alphabet having their whole language structure be so different like you're not gonna get you're not going to get to a higher level of proficiency in three semesters. Like, it's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, um, but then when I went to grad school, you know, I was in a literature program, um, and it was it was only French. So I just I just let it go. But I'd love to pick Arabic back up. So, awesome. Yeah, Arabic would be a cool language to yeah. learn. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I should definitely do some more languages, learn, try to learn some on my own, see, see how it goes. <laughs> I, I would advocate for that with for anybody, but... <laughs> yeah, but it, from my understanding, it wasn't your intention when you were Penn State. Penn State, you're, you might be the only person at Gilman who went to Penn State, maybe? Who else? Sarah Sachs, I, I believe, is a, is a Penn Stater, um, but yeah. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm from Pennsylvania, so yeah. obviously. And outside I, Philly. Outside Philly, <laughs> and I have so many family members who yeah. went to Penn State, there's not one person that, that I know who went to Penn State who doesn't have great things to say about that place. Add me to the list. Yeah, man. Yeah. What a fun time. Yeah. 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 Um, but it's my understanding that, that you did not intend to study modern languages when you were at Penn State. No, I, w- I was going to do a second major in French because I liked it, but I had no intentions of doing anything with it. It was just because I liked it. I wanted to go into journalism. Um, and, you know, I started, I got into um, when I got into Penn State, I got into the College of Communication, so I, was, um, I started I started journalism classes right away. I also started French classes right away because just because to get the major you need to, and I didn't want to take a semester off because I liked it. Um, I was writing for Penn State's paper, The Daily Collegian, um, writing on the arts beat, and but like I kind of I kind of woke up one day and I was like, wait, I hate this. <laughs> like, really? Wait, this sucks. Yeah, I don't know. I liked writing and I liked talking to people. And so those are two aspects that journalism does incorporate, but I didn't like the idea of having to go knock on somebody's door for a quote after they've under like gone through a tragedy that like I never could totally wrap my head around like how do you do that? Mm. Um so I <laughs> I had like 5 minutes to go until the midnight deadline when you have to officially declare your major and like freaked out and like called my mom crying. I was like I'm not doing this. I'm going to French instead. She was like oh, clicked switched to French um and you know I just and now I'm here (laughs) and that's what happened so so after you graduated from Penn State how did you find teaching because maybe Mm. that was that an intention too when you were undergrad or did you know Mm. you wanted to be a teacher no no I really and like I specifically didn't want to be a teacher because my mom was a teacher and I'm like "Mm, I can't do what she did but um I'm doing what she does um (laughs) no I started um I started the a program at um so they didn't really have a master's program at Hopkins. I just kind of went right into a, a doctoral program, but um, I did a year there and I hated it. I hated it so much. 
So I transferred to UVA and did a, um, finished up my master's degree down at UVA because they did have a master's program. So my, uh, my degree is in French literature. Great. And, and, and I was teaching undergrads at the time in, at both Hopkins and UVA. So I was teaching undergrad like 101 courses. Um, and that was the thing that I actually liked about grad school. Like I didn't love so much having to plow through thousands of pages a week just to get to my, just to be able to take my master's exam. It was a really intense, it was a really intense program. Um, but I, I liked the teaching. So I was like, oh, maybe, maybe I, maybe I could just do this for a little bit. Cause like also what else do you do with a master's degree in French literature? Right. You go onto a doctoral program, which I wasn't going to do, yeah. or you become a teacher or you have another major in your back pocket that you could pull up and be like, well, let me, let me put these together. But I didn't have that. So. Uh, so a master's degree in French literature, what does that entail? <laughs> Just a lot of reading of yeah, yeah, yeah. huge French? It was very, the program at the time, and they changed it the year after I graduated, which is kind of like, of course they did. But um, the program at the time was very much, I would say like very classically French. So we had a reading list of 200 works that you had to read medieval French, like starting in, in the first, the earliest pieces of literature that we could call French literature. So medieval through the present French and Francophone writers and um, it was just you know the literary canon that you had to read and then you sat for a it was a there was a written exam and an oral exam. Well, it seems pretty intense I think I would enjoy the teaching part too it's like yeah, it's a it break was, from all that it's yeah the it fun was, part. it was not I think it could have been I mean, I like to it, read too, obviously, but it kind of killed books for me for a little while, honestly. You know, I, I was having to read, I was having to read like three or four like tomes in a week, and yeah. you just you can't read for pleasure at that pace. You're just plowing through, and so I mean, there's actually there's a bunch of books that I read. The book I brought today is you know a b bunch of books that I read that I want to revisit to be able to actually take them in and take my time with them. Um, so I don't regret the program. I, I, I learned a lot. And at the same time, it was, it was a weird couple of years. It's almost because you're rushing through yeah. those yeah. large books and yeah. maybe not spending enough time on them. Nowhere near enough. Yeah. yeah. So after you graduated from the master's program at UVA, how did you find Gilman? I guess you probably knew about Gilman since you are from Baltimore. Yeah. You've always known about Gilman School. Exactly. So I, I graduated from UVA and then I got the job at NDP. Um, so I was there for four years, and then um, I was looking looking for a change um, for a lot of different reasons. And Gilman had a job that opened up, and I was like, I was like, okay, sure, like I'll apply. Let's see what happens. Because um, at the time, I was like, no, I don't want to teach all boys. Like I'm happy in my all girls world. Like I don't think so. But I I came and visited for the day, and I was like, oh my god, I I am missing out. <laughs> like, really? This is, yeah, I loved it. I really really loved it. Wow. it. Everything about the visiting day, I was like, okay, yeah, no. I would like to be here, like right now. <laughs> That's such a radical change from an all-girls school to an all-boys school. It's interesting that you came here, visited, and you were automatically wanted to teach all all boys. Yeah, I mean, like I would, you know, a little bit, a little bit, like okay, this is going to be an adjustment, a little, low, low level of like scared, intimidated, but I don't know. I just the energy was different, and. I don't, I don't know what it was. What's it like teaching all girls at an all-girls school? Or what was NDP like? Because I don't know too much about that school. Um, um, so NDP is a Catholic school, so it was there was um, there was always kind of a little bit of the... Everything was kind of under the umbrella of the Catholic religion. That said, they are one of the more um, 
I would say, more liberal Catholic schools in Baltimore, but they're still a Catholic school, right? So teaching at a Catholic all-girls school, it was really, really interesting because they, I mean, they, they focus a lot on social justice issues um, because that is one of the big, you know, one of the big tenets of the Catholic religion is, is really focusing on these kinds of issues. So in that respect, I think it was really, really awesome to see and crazy empowering to see girls um, in an environment where they're being really, really pushed um, and where they're able, and I, I would say the same about Gilman, though, where they're able to really reach beyond where I had ever seen girls or boys reach mm-hmm. um, with the work that they're doing. Because, um, you know, I came from public schools. Public schools are public schools. Like, it was fine, but that we weren't doing the kinds of things that NDP or that Gilman was able to do. So it was it was really empowering from, like, a go girls kind of a, in a way, you know, mm-hmm. It, that that aspect of it was really 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 cool interesting yeah i also come from a public you know yeah. co-ed school so mm-hmm. coming to gilman for the first time was interesting for me uh one because i had never really been on an all-boys campus before i didn't really know the dynamics of the all-boys institution but yeah. but i also teach in the junior english class okay. the girls and guys in the same room for the first time right and that was shocking to me from at the beginning <laughs> because it's so awkward you walk in totally and i was a first year teacher so i'm like that's great like, why don't that. you guys talk to each other i went to a, like this is normal for me yeah this but is it not was, a middle school dance but like it was <laughs> totally was <laughs> that's great i love that and i tried i tried everything that year to get them more comfortable with each other because yeah. it was it was awkward for me it was yeah. like loosen up but, yeah, like uh, be normal, please. But they don't. Yeah, they're, that's something. That's why we do this the way that we do it, right? And like, also, what is normal? But yeah, yeah. The coordination. I think it is important the coordination because you I do agree. you you do need to understand how to learn mm-hmm. amongst people who are just different from you. Yeah, absolutely. In in every different way. Exactly. Yeah, and you know we can get to a lot of those differences on our own campus, but. Um, we can't we can't touch it all so yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, i think it's an important part of who we are the the tri school coordination mm-hmm. um so teaching all boys what has that been like for you I, I, it sounds like you have really enjoyed that experience here mm-hmm. at gilman but coming in as a as a female t- teacher what what is it like to be in a classroom full of guys and what are those adjustments that you had to make from ndp being a woman in a classroom in front of boys, in a lot of ways, there wasn't a ton of adjustment. I actually could loosen up and be a little, I'm, I'm a little, I've been a little sarcastic, um, and I had to soften that a little bit when I got to NDP. I think the girls were, like, I, I got feedback from um, from my mentor, like, they think you're kind of mean. <laughs> like, okay, that's, like, not the goal here. So I felt like in some ways I was able to be, um, I was able to joke around more and have it taken as it was intended right. um and so that that was nice um i think being a woman in a boys school there are days where it's really hard though there are days where it's like holy cow this is like too much too yeah. much testosterone like i gotta i gotta go <laughs> gotta get out of here yeah um so you know and I, but i think the same was true again the same was true teaching at ndp there were days where like this is too much like girl stuff like get me out of here gotta go yeah so, so maybe a mix of both at, at you uh, know truly a mix yeah, yeah. There, there are going to be hard days um and i think i mean one of the things i so so value here at gilman was 
and I, and this goes back to the day that I came to campus to visit, is that the I think the the connections and relationships between the women on campus is that is so so crucial, and I think it might be something that might go unseen in some ways um, if you're not a, a woman, but um, mm-hmm. it, it is crucial. It is so, so important to have like-minded women and even not necessarily like-minded women, but just people on campus who understand what it is to be a woman standing in front of a room full of boys in an institution that was built for boys and not really built as a space for women to exist at all, though it was founded by a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, I mean, if, for me, that has been a crucial, crucial piece of me like uh, yeah just me being here and me loving to be here um have you been able to find some of that time to connect with other female teachers and really other teachers during the covid experience because i feel like i mean just from seeing you today i we haven't even really had much of a conversation at all this year no and right that's the, that's the case with a lot of teachers here yeah. so it really is an isolating time since last March, obviously, but have yeah. you been able to connect with other teachers and talk about some of this stuff outside of your classes? Yes, but it's been different. It's been, I mean, mostly via text messages, right? Um, I, I think I see maybe three teachers a day when I'm here. Like I see Ian Brooks and Jeff Guline up on the third floor because I'm, I'm up there. I see Cody and Tim teaching in the science building because the fifth grade got our classroom, so we're kind of all right. scattered. And right. I see matt jalen and joe in our op that's it that's who i see like period (laughs) i might run into other people in the hallways so it's it is kind of weird but um yeah i mean i think trying to maintain the connections with people i was art i think that's the that's the 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 loss here is that i'm maintaining connections with people i was already close with i don't feel like it's a year where i'm able to build much in terms of like new connections and new new collegial relationships yeah um which is a shame yeah i think and I told this to the guys in my class, just the small talk is what is missing. Like when you're just yeah. walking down the hallway and someone says something or even at assembly, like some of those just random encounters with exactly. people. Totally. It's We're really missing that right now. The it's, lunchroom. The lunch. Yeah. Lunch. I don't necessarily miss the lunch, but I miss the lunchroom. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. And you don't. Unless it was a mac and cheese day but that's fine yeah (laughs) (laughs) and you don't even really maybe realize it during a non-covid time like they're they're just it's lunch it's assembly you take it for granted for sure yeah um so what are some of the things maybe that you're doing outside of school outside of Mm. work that you're finding relax like a relaxing time or Mm -hmm. or some things that you do for hobbies that yeah is good for the the mental during COVID. Yeah. Um, so I, I was, I, I knit and I sew and I did those things before COVID started, but, um, it is nice to have something that you do have to focus and think about. Um, it's using a different part of my brain. Um, so yeah, knitting, sewing, creating, you know, clothes that I can wear. It was kind of nice. I made my shirt. Um, beautiful. So, yeah. Thanks. Very um, cool. yeah, you can't buy an octopus shirt. You got to make it, but I um, love it. <laughs> um, that's amazing. Yeah. Thanks. Wow. So you make all of your clothes pretty much? No, I make some of my clothes. Some of your clothes. Yeah, yeah. Something, it's just not worth it for me to figure it out. But. How'd you How'd you get into this hobby? Um, my my mom and my grandma both sew. And when I was a little, um, they had a, a children's clothing shop up in Towson Town Center. Um, and I, I think I was just always kind of surrounded by, my mom, you know, my mom's a maker. My dad, my dad uh, 
builds furniture and boats in his free time. I think he just kind of grew up in a house of makers. So um, I, I like figuring out how to do stuff. And I, I, I like having hobbies that I like working with my hands. So yeah. um, I'm going to be learning. My, <laughs> my, uh, my husband and I just bought a house. And um, I, uh, I fell in love with a table that I can't afford. So my dad's going to teach teach us how to build a table. Um, so learning new skills like that, I, I, something I like to do. Yeah, I mean, it makes it more meaningful if you just yeah. do it yourself. Yeah, it, yeah. That's, that's a cool yeah. hobby. That's um, especially during this time. At least it's something away from the screens that you're doing on your own. It's creative. Yeah, it's fun. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's a big piece of it, right? It's like, yeah. Do you do this pretty much every day, every week, or, or whenever you have time? Yeah, it's lately. It's been whenever I have time. We we um, husband and I moved right in the middle of winter break and so we're still doing all kinds of house stuff um Mm -hmm. before that all started i would knit most nights because it's mindless you just sit in front of the tv and it's it's very repetitive so it is i mean there's like a little bit of a meditative aspect to it it's doing the same thing over and over again Mm -hmm. um but i'm you know i'm hopeful kind of as the small projects at the house wrap up that that'll be something i'll be able to work in more more regularly but yeah is there, um, do you get um, inspiration from anything for your clothes that you make? Or like, how do you come up with the ideas for what your next project is? Um, so there's a, there's a, I, I, I don't know, mostly on Instagram, honestly. I yeah. follow, follow a lot of makers, a lot of sewists, a lot of knitters um, on Instagram and just kind of see what they're making, looking at the patterns that I follow, you know, people that develop patterns, which is, I mean, because I, I don't, I don't create my own patterns. I just like I buy the pattern and then make what they did because that is actually extremely challenging. I've tried once or twice, Mm-mm, way too hard. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, mostly through Instagram. Do you sell any of your stuff, or do you just mm-hmm. use, do it for yourself? I'm I'm a very selfish knitter, and so are like I if I make it. you something, like I really like you. <laughs> you yeah, know? that's like, a big birthday present. It's a because I think what people don't get so is much time. It's it's a huge time commitment, and um, especially knitting like. It could be months. It could be like a sweater is a month, easily, yeah. if not more. And so, like, oh, I have to really like you. Like, I've only even knit my husband a pair of socks. Like, like, no, like two. That's it. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Wow. Yeah. But then there's also the copyright issue, right? If I'm like, this is not my pattern. I, this is my shirt, but this is not my pattern. I would not be able to make this shirt be- and and then sell it because it's not my pattern. So there, uh, there's that aspect to it as well. So it you... doesn't mean people don't, but like you shouldn't. <laughs> so. The process of creating those patterns is that typically on the computer is that a drawing I have no clue how this how people go about making new patterns like this yeah I mean I think it starts it, it just starts with a, a concept of what you want your garments to look like but then it, it ultimately yes does wind up on the computer because you have to figure you're not just creating a pattern for one size if you're doing it right you're being extremely size inclusive so you're working from uh, you know, like a, like a 25 inch waist up through maybe a 60 inch waist. And mm-hmm. so the way that you have to grade all aspects of the pattern, the sleeves, the, the, for, you know, for this, the sleeves, the collar, the front of the, the front of it, the back of it, the yoke, which is the top, the top part here, all of that has to be graded appropriately based on the size range that you're going for. That's such a cool hobby that, that yeah. you have. It's fun. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, I just cut the stuff out and sew it, but it, it's fun. Yeah, and it's, it's relaxing. I mean, yeah, get sure. away from whatever it is you're doing. Yep. I, I feel like my brain at the end of the day from looking at my MacBook Air, it's going to explode. Yeah, yeah, totally toast. 
Um, yeah. So, like, I I like to paint a little bit. I cool. like to just go outside. I yeah. mean, go for a run. Just get away from the totally. technology. Yeah, when the weather's nice, go hiking. I do a lot of hiking, cool. um, which is which is nice. But I'm not that intense. Like, it's too cold right now. Where where do you hike around here? Um, I'll kind of all over the place. I go up to um. There's a bunch of uh, a bunch of different locations for Patapsco State Park. You can go hiking. Um, so that's kind of heading out towards Columbia-ish. Mm-hmm. And then up in, into Harford County, there's, um, I do like the King and Queen seat, which is, they're relatively vertical, but they're pretty short. There's a couple trails up there. And then through Gunpowder State Park, there's a different, couple different locations. That's yeah. my spot, Gun, yeah, Gunpowder. Cool. Yeah, um, nice. Jerusalem Road. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know if it's defined as hiking, but it's a great spot. And not that it's many, beautiful. Not that many people there. No. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. a nice little secret. Yeah, um, it's cool. Oregon Ridge, you should check out up in Hunt Valley. They've um, got a, probably five or six different trails back there. Yeah, it's okay. cool. Yeah, when I first moved here, I no, I, I was like, Maryland just does not have any hiking, but they're they're all hidden <laughs> gems. Yeah, you yeah. have to figure yeah. it out. Yeah, um, that's funny. So, I understand you also like to travel a lot, and I'm curious about maybe your experiences going to Paris. Have you been over to France and mm-hmm. to? To Spain too, and what were those? Never ex- been to Spain. Never been to Spain. Yeah, yeah. Um, I yeah, I've been to, I've been to France a few times. Um, uh, each well, I, when I wasn't traveling with students, each time I went, it was like you know what, I need to take a trip. Poof, purchase the ticket. They were not maybe the most thought out processes, but um, you know, it's going to France. Like you, you just get on. Just plane. do you it. Just go. Just do it. Um, so yeah, the first time I went, I was a junior in, in college, and I. Um, I just I just bought a flight for my spring break. I was, you know, some girls cut bangs when they're having a bad day. I was like, I'm buying that plane ticket. Um, yeah. So I, I did that, um, and that was it. Was cool, and I was only there for a week my first time, but it was like it just totally solidified. Like, yeah, I picked the right the right course, mm-hmm. um, course study. Um, and I've been back two, three or four more times for my own travel. And then when I was at NDP, I chaperoned some trips, and then. We can't, we're not chaperoning trips right now, so, but I mean, that's something I'd like to do again, but I've traveled, yeah, through, um, through, spent more time in Paris, but then traveling through the south of France as well. Um, what was that, like, Marseille? Um, where, where'd you go? I was in um, Avignon, I've been to Aix-en-Provence, and then Nice, which is right, right yeah. on the Mediterranean. Um, right on the beach, right? Is it, yeah. Yeah, it's beach, but... Um, it's they're like big rocks. It's actually not like this sandy beach that people think it is. Um, it's it's actually it like kind of hurts your feet. Yeah. But it is it is a beach. It's just different than what people think. It what is. else is there to do down south of France? <clears throat> Drink wine. Drink wine. Have a good time. Yeah. Enjoy it's, the sun. It's pretty relaxed. Yeah. Air blows and it smells like flowers, and you're just like, okay, I hate this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you wonder why all the French artists went down there. Yeah. It's no, because... exactly. The it's beauty gorgeous. of nature. Yeah, yeah. You get to the much more Mediterranean vibe. And that's cool. Any interest in going to Spain? Totally, yeah. yeah. I would love that's to go to Spain. Next on the list? Mm, it's on the list. It's not next on the list. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to take my honeymoon to Greece. That would be pretty cool. But I think other than that, Morocco is like my number one, number one. I really want to go to Morocco. <clears throat> I've been interested in Morocco lately too. I don't know why, but... Um, yeah. What, why do you want to go to Morocco? I mean, I think uh, studied French and Arabic, right? So, like, I have some of that background knowledge True. just from from my yep. studies. But I'll just it just every picture I see of Morocco, I'm like, this looks gorgeous. I I want to go there. I want to go to the Blue City. I want to go to Fez. You know, I want to go to all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was 
I like half planned a trip and then never bought tickets for it. So I've I've got half of an itinerary kind of mapped out for mm-hmm. someday. Yeah, I guess we're gonna have to wait a little bit. Yeah. To travel again. Yeah, I don't exactly. Know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I do want to maybe talk about the book that you brought mm-hmm. in today. I'm excited to yeah. get to this. Um, Let me get my bed. No worries. So I brought, I think I mentioned, I was talking about how the um, my master's reading list, I just kind of had to blast through so many things. I didn't get to spend any time with them. So this is a book I've actually been thinking about a lot lately that I want to reread, so I figured I would bring it, and it's called, the English title is I, Tichuba, Black Witch of Salem. Um, and so this um, author, uh, Maryse Condé, is a Guadalupian author and she um i mean it's it's people call it historical fiction i don't think she would necessarily say that that's all it is but she created a backstory for tichuba um from the salem witch trials because all we know about tichuba is her um her testimony Mm -hmm. and so she um she gave her a fictionalized life but it's just so rich um what is uh tituba's backstory she, um, well, we don't know. Like, her actual backstory is unknown. So what she came up with is that she was um, born in Barbados. Um, so this is all fictionalized about her. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but it's it's great. I don't, so, I don't know what. So what, what ended up happening to... She in in reality or in the book? In uh, in the book because in I guess book. that's all we know. That's right? all we know, right? And we don't know it. It's totally fictionalized. So she's born in Barbados. Her mom dies um, young. She is taken in by um, a woman who takes who is a like who's a healer, but like she's a witch doctor. But mm-hmm. that's what they call it. But that's not what she actually. Like, she's a healer, so she is trained in in um, a lot of. Of, of um, natural healing, natural medicine, which we know at the time was then looked down on and used as a reason to kill people, specifically women. And that's, I mean, that's kind of some of the back- background of the whole Salem Witch Trials, right? Um, and so then she, um, she winds up um, being enslaved and then... Um, at some point, Samuel Parrish purchases her, so then that's how she winds up in Salem. When he dies, she is sold to another man who, when he dies, frees her, and then sends her back to sends her home back to Barbados. But like that's the irony is like the whole story is. Um, I mean, one of the, one of the themes in the whole story is. Um, uh, what's the word? She gets off. <laughs> you know the French word. I know the French word. I don't know. Um, that's okay. But the uh, the uh, the fact that she doesn't have any roots because she's not from Barbados, right? Like she was she was brought over by the colonizers. Um, so the whole idea of like sending her back home, but like it's not back home. She's bar- Barbadian, but like she's not Barbadian. She's never really had a home. So there's kind of this piece of her searching for. What is a home? What is my home? How can I find my home? How might I define it? Um, but she keeps getting uprooted and sent and uprooted and, and purchased and uprooted. And so it's kind of her, her voyage through that. At, at one point, she does wind up in prison, which that is historically accurate. And with, with Hester Prynne, right? With Hester Prynne, yeah, yeah. Which is, 
it's obviously an anachronism, but wild. And it, so seeing the relationship between these two women um, and the way that Conde really creates their relationship, it's, 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 a, it's so cool to see women written in this way mm -hmm. because they wind up, though they don't always get along, they do wind up being in, very influential for each other. Are there, dia I guess there are dialogues between Hester and mm -hmm. Tutupa in, in It's prison? been a while since I've read it, if I'm being totally honest, but they do, I mean, yeah, they're in the cell together. What's um, really interesting is I, te I teach the Scarlet Letter for mm -hmm. uh, juniors and Nathaniel Hawthorne, who wrote the Scarlet Letter, his dad, John Hawthorne, different last name spelling, because Nathaniel was like, I don't want to be anything. No, it was his grandfather. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be anything like my grandfather who sentenced all these women to death. Mm -hmm. um, so Nathaniel changed his last name, but John Hawthorne, who's in charge of all of these um, sentencings, mm -hmm. was he was the guy. He was, yeah. he was I, I'm sure he's in the book it's that you're talking about. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's and how stuff. she and she how she adds Hester into this mm -hmm. i think but again i think absolutely on purpose she did it right yeah. um yeah cool yeah. um what what made you want to choose this book to bring in why, why do you like it so much i think it was a book that i read and while i was reading it i was just like oh like I, it just kept i just kept kind of like having to shake my head like what 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 like oh, oh my god like, i just feel like i hadn't read a book that made me think so much and I want to read it again for that exact reason it's I mean it's been I read it's been like six or seven years since I've seven or eight years since I've actually had to sit down and read it so I, I think I feel like I'm ready to like pick it up again and, and give it another give it a second look and mm -hmm. see like okay so what else what was going like I remember different moments in the story that just kind of blew me away and I want to see what those look like with 32 year old eyes now instead of like 24 Eyes, yeah, you know that's the best is rereading. Uh, re I like books. to reread books, and I know some people are like, "Why you know what happens?" I'm like, "But like, that's not the point. It's though. not the point. Like, okay, it's not about the plot. I mean, it is, but like, there's so much more there. Mm -hmm. um, there's a French author, um, 16th century author Rabelais. He wrote um, uh, Pantagruel and Gargantua, and in his um, ooh ooh. My uh, my knowledge failing me, but I believe it was the introduction to um, Pantagruel. He talks about how a book is um, the the reader needs to read the book the way the dog um, works with a bone, and like they they work to get every 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 little bit of the um, marrow out of the bone, and that's how a reader should approach a book. And it's it's like it's like a super famous like there isn't a French person that wouldn't have learned about that passage of literature at some point in their high school career right but it's like one of those but um, but I just I do that's how I feel I agree with everything. I agree with that guy yeah. you gotta reread him <laughs> awesome I love that yeah. that quote um, so great I'm gonna definitely check this book out yeah. I think it relates well to what I'm teaching too totally so. and it's widely widely translated. Um, Fairly yeah. recently translated? In the 90s. Yeah. It was written in 86. Um, it was translated in the 90s. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe the last question that I, that I have for you is I've been doing the podcast for a couple months now with Cesare, and, um, and we have a long list of people that we want to 
talk to and get in here and mm-hmm. learn maybe a little bit more about um, if you were the podcast host and you were at Gilman and you can choose alumni, students, teachers, staff, faculty, it doesn't matter, who would you maybe want to talk to and learn a little bit more about? That's a great question. <laughs> and you can think about middle school, lower school, it doesn't, right. does not matter. I want to hear more from, mm, I just thought of about five people. Um, I want to hear more from Pat Franz. Pat Franz. Yeah. She's got, like, I mean, I know so little, I mean, like, I know some things about her and where she, you know, how she wound up at Gilman, but I feel like she'd be someone I'd want to hear from. That's a great recommendation, yeah. yeah. Or Avante, I'd love to hear from Avante Jones, too. Yeah, I had no idea also Avante, she was singing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she's amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, there's knocked so many... all the socks off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was like, is that Avante? Yeah, that was pretty yeah. cool. She killed it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. There's so many people here who have like side talents, side hobbies. Like you're, you know, sewing and knitting. That yeah. that that was amazing. Like <laughs> yeah, so. everyone has different things that they mm-hmm. do. So trying to get that out there for people to learn a little bit more about. Yeah, totally. Awesome. Well, Claire, thank you for coming in today. It was a great conversation. Thanks for having me. And uh, we'll see you soon. Sounds good.